looking to stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green and Dan Ferlito. Thank you for joining us tonight, everyone. And today we are here to talk about, actually, let's welcome back Dan to the show. It's been a while since Hi, he's been on. Hi, you guys. Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks. Welcome back, Dan. Happy to be back. We haven't all, I think the last uh, episode we recorded with you was for Perfect Organism. Probably so. I think. It's been a minute. And that was like... Six months ago. <laughs> there we go. Dan hasn't been on the show in a year and a half. <laughs> Did you get a haircut? We recorded frame rate with you yesterday, and your hair looked significantly me fringier than it does now. Yeah. Did you it not? Does its, what, what did it you does do? its thing. This is my wake up. Oh, this is my wake up hair. By, I've been like doing house chores. Just hidden all day, by so. your your band on the top of the headphones. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. It's nice to see you again, man. You too. Welcome back. Thanks. Yes. Welcome you back. Guys, too nice. So tonight we are here to discuss the. Why do I always lose my words right when I'm going to do this? All the time. I'm when I'm thinking about so much. We're here to discuss the production design of Blade Runner 2049 uh, by production designer Dennis Glasner. And uh, this is sort of a part two of, I guess you could call it the, the art and architecture of... We're getting a timeout signal. From Sorry, Dan. you're probably not going to want to... It's Glasner. I said yeah, Glasner, yeah, yeah. didn't I? Oh, my God. It's okay. I can't okay. get... It's uh, not quite as bad as Tanya Lehane. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's okay. I uh, I, I said uh, Turnbull instead of Trumbull, and I did that wrong like a couple Dan, times. You said that oh, for yeah. a year. Every single time you said <laughs> it. And, and why you motherfuckers ain't correcting correct me, this is why I'm all about correcting people. I want to know if I'm fucking English. shit up. Do you English, speak it? Motherfuckers. Speak it. Okay, so we're going back to uh, second zero. Okay. Okay. In tonight's episode, we're here to discuss the art, well, not the art direction, but the production design of Blade Runner 2049 by production designer Dennis Gassner, who worked in tandem with Denis Villeneuve and many different artists to bring to life the world of 2049. But before we get into it, Dan has a quote that he wants to read. From the book, The Art and Soul of Blade Runner, by Tanya LaHane. I mean, Tanya LaPointe. <laughs> right. This is, yeah, one of the very first pages. It's the foreword, essentially. Uh, this is Denny Villeneuve talking. 
Once I made peace with the idea that making a sequel to one of the most influential science fiction movies ever made was insane arrogance, I immediately came across a problem. Ridley Scott's original Blade Runner was set in 2019. A punk dystopian vision of the future, inspired by the pop culture of the end of the 70s. One of the biggest challenges of Blade Runner 2049 would be imagining how this iconic world would evolve, becoming an alternate universe in itself. Steve Jobs didn't exist in the original Blade Runner, and the USSR still ruled half the world. For a time, I felt trapped in the logic of it all. What, would, what should be included in this universe and what shouldn't? I went to New York to have coffee with Hampton Fancher, the writer of the original movie. In the lobby of an Art Deco hotel, he gave me the key to making this film. He told me, listen, stop putting pressure on your shoulders. The first movie was a dream. We just dreamed a lot. You have to do the same thing. Don't try to overthink the logic. So I put together a team of dreamers to create the future of an old dream. I asked them to imagine the future without Steve Jobs, but with the USSR, and to create a Blade Runner world with the silver light of Canadian winters. In the summer of 2015, a reconnaissance squad of concept artists was airborne above the Blade Runner world and started a visual exploration led by designer Aaron Hay. They were the first dreamers, and some of their work is still alive in the movie today. I spent several weeks in the fall of that year in a hotel room in Montreal with cinematographer Roger Deakins and storyboard artist Sam Hudecki and Daryl Henley, drawing the foundation of what would become our movie. Production designer Dennis Gasner joined the team at the end of 2015, and we were ready to start. Together, we chose Budapest as our playground, hired one of the best teams ever assembled, and made the dream a reality. One of the most beautiful things about cinema for me is that it's a collective act of poetry. A small army of artists working in the dark, creating illusions and emotions in order to explore shadows and beauty of the human condition. Well, it's an interesting setup. Um, he approached bl making Blade Runner and everyone involved, much like we approached watching it. Like, what are they going to do? How do they do this? How are they going to create this or recreate this again? And I think it's, it's, it's a fairly... Of course, it's a big ask, and it's the ask that you need to have. You can't just go in there and make a, a film without thinking it through. Nobody really does that. I mean, some people probably do that, and they get shit films. Um, but this is, you know, this is the science fiction film of the century. And how do you follow that up? And I, the next question, I think, might be, what did we, when you guys heard about this, was there a world being built in your head about where this would go? Did you guys have questions like, I wonder what this is going to look like? Did it stop there? Or did you imagine what it was going to look like? I think in my often reported worry as a fan about hearing that this sequel is being made, I mostly felt like I was thinking about what I wanted it to not look like and what I would hope they wouldn't do. Um, and, you know, I didn't. I knew it was a sequel and not a remake, but I still felt like the main pitfall was going to be to, um, ironically, since so many fans, since of the fans that are um, slightly disappointed in 2049, which is a small percentage, their major complaint, as we mentioned, seemed to be, or as we've talked about anyways, seemed to be... Um, there's not enough of the feel of the first film. And, and I was ready to be re-immersed in that first film. And I was disappointed that I didn't get to be. 
um, I was kind of hoping the opposite, which is where the film ended up going, because I was worried that they were going to rely too heavily on the imagery of the first film and not do anything that was new enough. And I think uh, we've seen that with a lot of remakes and sequels and prequels to other things. And I think that the approach that um, Denis talks about in that quote is really poignant and I think describes a lot of his philosophy, which was, again, the reason why Atari is still a company um, in, in 2049, right? Because it's not a representation of our future. It's a continuation of the future from 2019. And that's something that obviously was very in the forefront uh, of the mind of all the artists and staff working on the film. And I think that was great. That was really the way to go about it. So, um, yeah, I think my imagination was more filled with fears of how they were going to screw this up. And it didn't allow me space to, like, you know, be in awe of wonder, like, oh, what's it going to be like? And and, and be positive. I, I wasn't in that frame of mind when I heard the film was coming out, even all the way up to my first viewing, which, of course, I was uh, – pleasantly surprised of where the film went but those those are my initial thoughts you know we had to look back to the original film because you know it was an homage it was a dream back to them but we also had to stand on our own as a standalone film so it was a really tricky balance to try and find to find the tone of that roger didn't want to totally emulate and and of course i didn't want to emulate as well too so um, it, we, just the simple fact that they only used one piece of neon in the entire film. The rest was LEDs because of the, it's just to have the, the control of the light and, and so on. So, so it was uh, it was definitely you know, we wanted the moving light. We wanted to have that, uh, and all of that was built into the sets. I mean, you can probably tell the sets were designed with Roger very, very specifically to, to move the light. They have the ability to move the light. And it was a, it was a, I, I, it was a poem. It became this uh, poetic kind of uh, film to, to see in the end. You know, it was, a, it was a, uh, extremely happy with, uh, with the journey, as hard as it was. My initial thoughts were just that it was going to be more of the same and I was totally fine with that honestly I was I was very excited to see that aesthetic again I I don't feel like it's um you know I, I feel like given the team that was assembled to make this film including Ridley Scott being a part of it uh I was like all I was all ready for that I mean I, I adore the aesthetic of the 2019 film I adore that the aesthetic that has been aped and screwed up by a million things since then uh, I still like watch those things for that aesthetic because I, I love it like I love that cyberpunk sort of a thing um that being said I don't think I realized that it would have been a bad call until I saw the film that we got, which is a film that I never in a trillion years would have ever personally made look the way that it did. And I'm so incredibly grateful that the team behind it did make it look the way that they did because it was absolutely brilliant. And like we've said in the last few episodes, because, you know, we, we did the conceptual art episode, we did the architecture episode. We've been kind of talking about this quite a bit from a visual standpoint. And something that I've mentioned a few times now is that uh, like the the reasons that they made those this aesthetic jumps were story based and character based. They weren't just to do something different. They weren't just to kind of throw people off or do something innovative or do something cool. It was because it was telling the story of that world and those characters that were inhabiting it and what happens when that world erodes and what happens when the the glitz and the neon get subsumed by the pollution. Um, and I think that that works so incredibly well. And that's why even though 
I mean, I, I, I'm a Blade Runner loyalist, you know, like I, I've loved that movie for most of my, for well over, you know, three quarters of my life at this point. Um, many of my friends are, you know, you guys are, and yet all of us, when, not all of us, many of us, when we saw this new movie, which could have been very offensive in some ways, kind of within the first few minutes, we're like, okay, this is a different vision and I'm going to, I'm going to give this a chance. Um, and I think part of that has to do with the establishing shots. Like I said, on the last episode, I think that starting the film with light was so different and audacious because after the eye opens, instead of flying over burning oil derricks, we're flying over fruit fields and solar panels and they open up in the open sky. Um, and there is like no mistake being made there by Denis and Deacons and Gassner and company that, uh, they are telling us that this is a new vision and that either we're going to sit there for two and a half hours and be miserable about it, or we're going to, we're going to explore the reasons why it's a new vision. So tonight, I hope we get to spend some time talking about that side of things for sure, about why they made these decisions, like why it looks so different and what implications that has for the story and the characters in it. But Jamie, what about you? Um, I think I knew, and as we all probably knew that everything in the original Blade Runner works together, everything like, you can't have one without the other. The music doesn't work without the visuals. The visuals don't work without the without the music. The characters don't work with but without both. So going into it, I was very concerned that one part wasn't going to work, which would mean other parts weren't going to work either. Like it would be a domino a effect. And we've all experienced, yeah, we've all experienced this in movies where all of a sudden, and I'm not just talking about a sequel or a prequel or whatever. I'm just talking about going into a movie and, all of a sudden something starts stops working for you or it's not working for you and then boom 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 the rest stops working as well for whatever reason so blade runner for me 2049 for me was like it had to be right it and i i, I don't know if i was expecting the same aesthetic however i did see that short film with <clears throat> pardon me with sapper morton and it really recreated the world that ridley scott built and so it set me up a little bit like okay so this is what they're going for again they're redoing this again um and that short film with um wallace also felt a little bit like ridley scott's vision um it was the least visually interesting of the three but it had that like cluttered 1940s 1920s feel retro feel that Ridley Scott is known for from Blade Runner. So those films, those short films really set me up to, to think that Blade Runner 2049 was going to really bring back that aesthetic. And it didn't, uh, it did in some fundamental ways, but like you said, Patrick, the first opening shot where it's just bright, it's bright white or not white, but it's bright like grays and, you have this it's lone, close to white. I mean, it's like yeah. constant. It's it's very close. Yeah, yeah. And you have that lone spinner flying out in the middle of this of the sky, and it was the filmmaker saying, "Look, this is going to be different." And um, it was jarring at first because what do we do when we're going back to familiar material? We look for something familiar. We look for something that is like a, a visual cue. So we're like, Oh, we're comfortable again. And we didn't get that right away with 2049. We, it took us a while to find something familiar. But while I agree with you, I will interject that it was a genius move, probably pressed on mostly by Ridley Scott. I imagine was the initiator of this idea 
well, certainly artistically, he initiated this idea, but what to make the opening scene about in 2049 is uh, very famously not a secret that that scene was written by Fancher and Ridley Scott for the first film. So what a genius idea, uh, if not in visual, at least in, in the screenplay and conceptually to, and it's, it's not even, it's almost subconscious, right? The audience doesn't necessarily know that that was a scene written for the first film, unless you study Blade Runner and read Paul Salmon's Future Noir, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's a well-known fact, but if you're just a casual moviegoer, you wouldn't know that. But how cool is it that they chose to take something that was written back in the very early 80s for the first film and do that as an introduction into the world of 2049? I, I mean, in, in retrospect, reading about the film, I was like, that's a brilliant move and almost like would have been disappointing had they not done that, especially not use the context of this now very famous scene of, um, you know, originally it was Deckard, but a Blade Runner walking into this farmhouse and the, and the kettle boiling on the stove. I mean, everything about it is just so iconic. And so I I feel like that's a cool juncture point between the two films, at least, um, historically or conceptually, you know, even though yes, the, the, the lighting is different and the setting is different and you wouldn't necessarily guess that that scene was written for the first film if you didn't know that. But I still think from a behind-the-scenes kind of tongue-in-cheek perspective, it's, like, really cool. And not even necessarily just from a behind-the-scenes tongue-in-cheek perspective, but I think in, in terms of the, the genetic material that underpins this film, it's important because what it tells you is that it feels like Blade Runner because it feels like Blade Runner without having the aesthetic of Blade Runner at all. Because when he's in Sapper's farmhouse, like, I mean, it is a pastoral scene with two people talking over boiling garlic. It is like not at all similar to anything that we see in the original film, but it was written in the original for the original film by the people who wrote the original film. And it feels like it's from, it's from the original film. And by transplanting it now into this aesthetic, which is like very, I mean, it's bright daylight, etc. cetera. Um, it feels like the filmmakers are sort of telling us Blade Runner is more than the aesthetic that you've been thinking it was this entire time. Blade Runner is deeper than that. And everything else on top of it is is free. I, I think from an editing perspective too, I just think it's it's just a, a brilliant decision. And it also like that that particular sequence to me makes me question what Blade Runner means to me personally, just from a filmmaking standpoint too. Because even though it doesn't have a lot of the trappings of the first film, it doesn't have a lot of the film noir things. It doesn't have uh, the dialogue doesn't read the same way, even though it's largely taken from the original. It doesn't feel the same. It doesn't have the same kind of like um, kind of noirishness to it. Uh, and yet it feels like nothing else but Blade Runner. And I think it's so it's so interesting. And I, and I think that setting up that little genetic sequence at the beginning allows the rest of the movie, as it, it becomes encoded and unfurls, to feel like a Blade Runner film, even when it doesn't look like one. And it hits on something that you and I discussed on a Perfect Organism episode, Patrick. That scene, the scene that we're talking about, the opening scene, it feels right because it was written 40 years ago or more. Um almost 40 years ago now. So it's been around for a long time. It's mythology at this point. So it's tangible. People have known about it. It's been in the atmosphere. It's been in um, our our psyche, whether it's present or in the background. And those are the types of things that stay. And it, it, there's a really big difference, you know, much like we were talking about uh, the brutalism or brutalist iconography in 2049 it's powerful because it reminds us of uh, it, it is earth and rock it's always been here 
Um, and it's a, it's a reminder, it reminds us of the pyramids. And I think this scene is almost like a pyramid scene where it's been in lore for a long time. So it just, it's right as rain. But one interesting, in terms of the setup, what I find incredibly um, powerful is the idea that Denis and company decided we're going to open up this world way wider than it's ever been, while at the same time feeling way closed off than we've ever felt, way more isolated than we've ever felt. And that's a hard thing to, to pull off. I don't, I, I, I'm sure they've obviously thought of everything through, but here we are accompanying Kay in his ship. Um, and as he goes to the LAPD and all of these places in this wide open space that we've never seen before in a Blade Runner film while feeling way more isolated with him than we ever felt with Deckard. Right. Yeah. It's like it maintains the um, emotional isolation and claustrophobia while opening up the physical world and opening up the spaces both inside of like Wallace's headquarters for example where the building is just you know impossibly vast both from the outside and from the inside um, as well as getting out to the outskirts of the city right the only thing the movie doesn't do is take you off world but it definitely shows you a much uh, wider landscape right I, I think the it is again it is so interesting to see um a world that we're somewhat familiar with turned on its head, um, opened up wider, um, not claustrophobic and rainy, even though we have moments of that. I mean, I think that moment with joy on the, on the roof with Kay is iconic and beautiful. And the music is amazing and it's very familiar. And you've got that, like that billboard woman speaking in the background. I don't really know what she's saying. We are immersed in the sights and the sounds of Blade Runner. Um, but it's a very, very wide shot. And the, the last time we were on a roof during the rain was when Deckard was being killed. Or was there, he was trying to be, there, uh, Batty was trying to kill Deckard. And uh, it's, it's a really, really wonderful scene. But I just, I, again, I think it's just genius that they approached this film in the way that they did. And I wasn't really, I, maybe you guys were, I don't know, I don't know, maybe our listeners were, but I wasn't really like hoping like, I mean, there was part of me that was thinking, where were they going to go? Are we going to go to an iconic L.A. location? I was hoping for that. I was hoping that they'd give us one moment of an iconic L.A. location because it's set in L.A. Why not? Um, And they didn't do that, which was a little bit uh, disappointing to me, to be honest with you. Um, But I think the decisions that they did make um, were brilliant. There's one quote that I wanted to read um, from Dennis Gassner when he was talking to Denis Villeneuve, he asked him if you could sum up what you're trying to do with this new film, with this Blade Runner film in one word, what would that word be? And Denis responds, brutality. Um, and I think that word encompasses everything, whether it's the emotional, um, the emotional climate of the film, the architectural aesthetic, the production to design aesthetic, all of it is very brutal um, to sort of everyone in that world at that time. And it's all over. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And I feel like whether it was planned from the beginning of initial concept design and initial screenwriting or whether I think it was a combination of things probably that it was planned, but also they kind of rolled with things as they came up. And I think when you talk about um, brutalism, the, the architectural design and 
I'll let Patrick chime in here if, if he needs to correct me since I still barely understand this. But this concept of these all cement building, which like in the U.S. a lot of federal buildings have been built like this. I don't know if they exactly follow a brutalist aesthetic, but they're certainly giant buildings made out of mostly cement. And so they made this choice with um, the Wallace Earth headquarters. And I talk about this all the time. Because I, I just mentioned it to someone on Facebook recently because um, if you go back to our 14th episode, uh, which is before I was on the show, but Jamie interviews the guys from Weta um, Workshop in New Zealand that did all the models for the um, miniatures of the city. And after all these episodes, when I introduce people to our show, I will usually point them to that show simply because the level of detail that the model makers go into in terms of visualization and concept of how these buildings are supposed to exist in the rest of this world were incredible. And with Wallace's headquarters specifically, they were talking about, you know, I've, I've mentioned this a million times, but they built this building out of concrete. First of all, the model was three meters tall. So it's a pretty substantial model to be working with. And they built it in layers to simulate how it would go up in real time, right? Each layer would go up a month at a time or whatever it is. If you had a construction crew out there, the it would get weathered at different rates. And they, and they did all that. And then just to go back a little bit to rewind to when you were talking about pyramids and the concept of things having always been there. I mean, the fact that they, they took the fact that the Tyrell pyramid, I think is copyrighted. Is it Douglas Trumbull that owns the copyright? It's a single person who owns the copyright to the Tyrell pyramids, right? Patrick. Uh, it, it is, I don't know. I don't know why Trumbull would own it, but I, I kind of, I feel like I don't know if it's him or someone else, but regardless, but we, we've talked about this on an episode. Right, right, right. Yeah. Regardless, like, yeah, so, and, and so somebody, somebody owns the copyright. Right. So it's a whole yeah. separate thing that requires separate money and is like not included yeah. in the Warner brothers stuff. And so I think that just, just think about the coincidence of that because the reason why, the main reason I think that Tyrell's pyramid ends up being obscured and blackened to where you can see the, the defunct silhouette of it in front of Wallace's Earth headquarters and then as the spinner moves on, the camera's kind of floating over into um, Wallace's headquarters. Like, what a great way to use really a practical obstacle in the sense that I'm sure someone on that design team was like, oh, let's revive Tyrell's pyramid. It'll be so cool to like do the lighting the way they did it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And someone was like, hate to break it to you, but we can't. Like we don't have the rights to it. And so they ended up using it as a blackened pyramid. And I think – Did they say that? Mm-hmm. That they didn't have the rights to well, it? Well, they I, – I, I, they, I, I mean – they could have acquired them I because imagine. the structures in it. It's just not a lot. Li- 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 yeah. I, I mean, I identifiably a copyright lawyer, like a Hollywood copyright lawyer will have to write in or, or call in and, and tell us how this works. But I, I don't know the exact mechanics of it, but I do know that that was, well, this, Go, go ahead. I was just saying, I know that was part of the decision in the aesthetic that they went with in that shot, but my, whether that's true or not, my point is that the fact that that's the way it ended up, is so perfect for the film because it visually shows you Wallace's corporation literally being born out of Tyrell's earlier work and Tyrell being out of the picture. And there's a visual representation of that in the scene. And I thought that was so great. So if the copyright issue is as I think it is, um, what a great way to um, 
make do with what you have and, and, and end up with something that's perfect, even though tech, you know, that could be an obstacle to someone else, you know? So the, the, the copyright conversation came up with David Leach when we were talking about the comic book okay. series and it was, uh, and, and they were saying how they didn't have the rights to be able to use that iconography because it was owned by an estate. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, there's not only layers of this world that we're talking about, but there's layers of legal <laughs> entrapments in this world too you know like jamie you were just mentioning the other day it's it's surprising there hasn't been a coffee table book of art from this yet mm-hmm. and uh and and immediately i was like i think it's because it's there's been barely anything produced from the original film because the rights to so many things have been so difficult for people to pin down and to get for such a long time um you know they transfer between estates and you know, etc um i want to go back to a moment to that or to that introductory scene uh, I, I just opened up tanya lapointe's magnificent book again and uh, there's a caption in Sapper's Farmhouse that says, quote, Roger Deakins' lighting in the farmhouse is the epitome of film noir. Some actors would only visit sets after they had been lit by the cinematographer because he had transformed every set and location, giving them a soul and bringing them into the world of Blade Runner. And I think there's something key to that, because if I think back to that scene now, there are a lot of, from a lighting perspective, film noir conventions in that, mm-hmm. right? Even though it's broad daylight, and even though it's very bright, the harshness of the light, the high contrast of the light, the backlighting, things like that, the silhouetting of the figures in it, like that feels very Blade Runner to me. It feels very film noir. And I think Deacon's being involved, even though he obviously wasn't involved in the original film, his understanding of the way light and shadow worked in the original film was integral to the way that this film played out. One of the, uh, we, we got this this really wonderfully eloquent email from somebody who I don't remember who it was. They probably don't listen to the show anymore because they were. It was. It was a very kind of uh, angsty email about twenty forty nine when it came out, remarking on um, how much they didn't like how different the aesthetic was, and and the thing that he kept harping on was the light was very different for him. Um, and I can a hundred percent understand what what he means by that because the world of twenty forty nine. There's some scenes in twenty forty nine that are so bright that you kind of have to like squint a little bit in the in the movie theater because it's it's a very bright movie. Um, not all of it, obviously. Uh, whereas 2019 is, is is fundamentally a dark movie. He used the word tenebral for it, which it was just a, a wonderful word, which means, uh, you know, like death, like it's like a death-like or fun- funereal. Um, so what's interesting is when you look at, the, at the, the, the things around that darkness in the original film, you notice that there are very high contrast light blocks in it, right? It's, it's very bright and very dark. In this one, the very bright things are just turned up like it's like the black point shifted and then the very dark things are also turned up a little bit so it still feels kind of like blade runner even though it's even though it looks very different um but i think that that plays out also into the streets of la which is the next section of the book um the cityscape is something you know we we talk we've talked at a lot of length at this point about the you know the architecture of it but the ways that the city is designed i think also says quite a bit about the way that this world functions you know for one thing um, there's nobody on the street anymore, right? Just from a from a fundamental standpoint. I mean, 2019 is like is defined by that aesthetically. It's just the hubbub of the roaring streets and the mud, the the huddled masses, the muddled hasses. You know, everybody <laughs> everybody cluttered cluttered all together. You know, like hiding from the rain. You know, smashing into each other, talking a million languages. In 2049, the roads are just empty. It's just there's a figure. You know, we see K in his coat walking past a small huddled group of people walking in another direction, walking past a street sweeper. Um, there's very little, even in that food court sequence, the street market sequence, um, there aren't very many people there. And the people that are there are largely obscured by umbrellas, so you don't even really get a sense of, of how many there are. And that 
is another one of these things that that's telling a story. Like, that's telling us something when we're watching this movie. There's a reason those people aren't on the streets anymore. The streets not only aren't safe, they're not healthy. Like, it is not a good idea to be outside for any protected period of time for various reasons. Um, and and I think that you that is reflected, of course, in the architecture, which has become more bunker-like, right? Which has become more brutal, like we were talking about. It's become more fortified, more closed off. In the original movie, a lot of the spaces, a lot of the built environment was semi-open. A lot of the, a lot of the buildings had balconies, for example. Deckard mm-hmm, has one, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the buildings uh, have porticos. They have entrances where the wind can pass through. There's columns outside, you know. Um, in this movie, there's nothing like that. It, not only is there no ornamentation, there's barely even, like, apertures for light to enter a building from. It is so closed off and so solid. And um, and also, I think probably, although this isn't explicitly mentioned anywhere, um, part of that, I think the reason why there are so few people on the streets in this movie is because I think more of them have either died or have left. I think that in, in the original film, the people who were on World obviously were people who couldn't afford to get off World for the most part. But I also think that there was like there were probably people who just didn't want to let go of Earth and kind of just stuck around and, and thought that things were going to turn around. And then the blackout happened. All of these events happened in the meantime. And the world of 2049 comes, and it is desolate. I mean, there were these huge, huge hunger issues, right? We learned about that in the in the intermediary short films. There were pandemics. There was there was nuclear conflict. There was dirty bombs set off in Las Vegas, which I, I really want to talk about because we've been kind of dancing around Vegas for a while now. Um, and I feel like uh, the 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 desolation of 2049 is just as important to me as the brutality of it. Um, I also think, though, that I forgot, Dan, I think you were mentioning this a little while ago um, about at what stage they kind of determined that this look was going to be very different in the pre-production process. Um, it was I think that it was actually before the pre-production process had started when it was just when it was just this dream that was taking off, as I mentioned in a couple of episodes. There's this wonderful story in this book, and I think in the other book too, where um, Villeneuve and Deacons and I don't know if Ga- Gaston I think came at some point eventually, but basically the head honchos of this production just rented a hotel room in Montreal for like a month, and it just became their home base. And I just I wish um, I, I I would love to see footage of that. I don't think there is any. I don't, I've never seen any pictures from it or something. But just the idea that like this incredible world that we've now devoted so many episodes to came out of this like little hotel room in Montreal is just so cool to me. And they sat there and they waited and they, they worked through and they iterated and they talked and they got to the point where they got to this idea of silver and this idea of obscured light. And then that was like, that was the, that was it. And then Deacons got it from a lighting standpoint. Gassner got it from a production standpoint and Villeneuve got it from a tonal standpoint that the, the, the movie was going to be bright light hid behind a curtain and that I think is just uh, it's just great, and and it and it's and it's why it doesn't feel like it's um it's just wearing a costume or anything. It feels like this is the real world that this inhabits, mm-hmm. and I just love that so much. Yeah, one thing I think you mentioned that is uh, worth a discussion, or as we move forward, or to frame this discussion as we move forward in terms of the art or the um, production design, the blackout. The blackout wasn't just oh someone turns the lights out. It was like a nuclear holocaust. It was it was destruction, and the loss of power, and then a world having to be rebuilt, in, in the shadow of that. And what is it ended up being a very different world. And so when we talk about the world not feeling completely familiar, there's a reason why. And uh, much like we discussed with 
uh, I think, uh, I don't know if it was on the episode with Robin Bunce, Dr. Robin Bunce, uh, or another one, but when they, when Gassner and Villeneuve and all of these people are together in that hotel room in Montreal, they're not coming up with things haphazardly. They're saying, okay, now what's happened in this world? And what does this look like because this has happened? This very deliberate, specific decisions that they're making as they move forward. Just like uh, Gassner and Villeneuve talking about what is, does the world look like without S- Steve Jobs. Um, it's progressed, but maybe hasn't progressed that way. So let's build that world so it's believable. And that's what they had s- sort of one step after the other, after the other, after the other. And like we were discussing in a, a prior episode, a lot of those production design images look a lot like the original film. Um, they recreated it. And in fact, I've said this before on another show, Villeneuve himself said, I had to keep telling them not to recreate things that they've seen before. Everyone wanted to do that. They wanted to bring this back. They wanted to do this. And he goes, when people approach this type of IP, everyone wants to remake what they've seen before. And we can't do that. And again, it just really served them. But I also think, there are so many moments in 2049 that channel 2019, whether it's the rooftop scene, whether it's Kay walking home in the beginning of the film from LAPD, whether it's his flight into LAPD and going through all the buildings. So much of that film is very specific portions of 2019 redone for 2049. Um, one thing to your point too, Patrick, about... Um, not about the lack of people on whether it's in LA or wherever. Um, there's a moment where Kay, when he walks into Celine's facility, he says, "What?" He's essentially he asks her like, "Why are you here?" And I always thought about that question, like, "Why is he asking her why is she here?" Because no one who can afford to leave is still living on Earth. That's why she's still there, and there was a reason why. Um, and so I think that that's important. Like all the people sitting out in front of Kay's apartment on the stairwell, like probably like below poverty. They, that's probably their home. They probably live on those steps. They're outside their apartments because they don't live there. They just find shelter there, I would imagine. So no one who, I think the people on earth are even poorer now than they were in 2019. Whereas in 2019, it seemed like, Yes, people lived off world, but there was plenty of people still on Earth in L.A. living it up, going going out, going to shows, going to bars, doing all of those things. That's over, though. That's done. And maybe the blackout was that final, um, that last ditch, like effort for them to like, okay, no, we're done with this planet, we're leaving, and so all the refuse, the refuse, the refuse is left over, um, which again informs the production design. What does this world look like when it's just the homeless? What will the, what would the world look like if it's just the homeless is, is occupying it? And you have uh, a team of policemen making sure that within that population, replicants aren't passing through. That is a brutal world. It's a, it's a very unappealing, unapologetic world. Yeah, I think that's an apt uh, comparison and observation. And, Though we may not be shown them in the film, 
I would imagine that the people left on Earth who are not in this lower uh, class and poor and, uh, and homeless are people maybe not quite like Wallace, but people who have business and things that they're making money off of on Earth. And those are the people... Like, you know, when you look at the bar scene from the original, it's not really... Like it, you know, they say, oh, it's in the fourth sector. And Rachel's like, oh, I wouldn't want to go. You know, that's not my kind of place, etc. And it's sort of meant to feel seedy. But really, everyone in there is pretty well dressed. And it looks like an upper class kind of bar. So, again. Yeah, they're wearing like costumes and shit. Exactly. Like they're, they're, so they're dressed up. I wouldn't assume that all the people in that bar, for example, couldn't afford or didn't pass the medical to go off Earth. Yeah. They might just have other business and maybe they're just visiting, you know, they might be on earth temporarily and they do have a house off world or whatever, but it's like they're business people and whatever. So I think if anything, the situation on earth, both in 2019 and in 2049 has just exacerbated class differences and um, what do you call it? The, the wage gap essentially, you know, where you have um, either people that, the dichotomy being either people who don't want to be on earth, but don't have a choice or people who are choosing to be on earth for probably financial reasons, but they can leave any time, right? They can afford to. Um, so, yeah. And I think something I hadn't really considered this until Jamie's point is that there was like almost no visible culture in 2049. I hadn't really thought about that in 2019. There is, everything is cultural right there's all these different restaurants from these different diasporas there's you see you know kanji up against you know european writing you see all of these different so many different companies representing so many different industries you see all of these different sort of like although it's an agglomeration although it's this mega city you can tell you can still get a clear sense that there are elements from tokyo as well as san francisco as well as la as well from the east coast as well as from you know other continents etc um, in 2049, like there's there's just none of that. Even in the street market, which is where the the only real scene where that would happen, it's like porn and food. It's like it's like a shopping mall. Basics. Almost. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's the, well, the essential. Prostitution. Right? Not even porn is putting it too lightly. The prostitution, right? Oh, but 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 what we're presented with though is is, Sex is trade. porn, and that it's basically we're seeing behind again like veiled light, just nude bodies, you know, writhing I, around. I guess right? so it's, it's like, both. Right, <laughs> it's a one-stop shop. Yeah, it's prostitution for for, for one person and porn for other people. Right, but for us as the film viewers, like what we're seeing basically is just like just naked bodies and food, and it's 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 just it's so weirdly sanitized, even though it feels very dirty and very kind of desolate. Like there's a, a sense of sanitariness to it, which is is sort of sort of weird. Um, and, and, and how it's, many and it's, of those people are replicants too? Like, right. that's the yeah, question right. I had. Like, who is this world for? Who are these people? I almost feel like the people with the most, the better quality of life are replicants, whether they're people like Mariette or Kay, who are sort of there to keep things static, to keep things copacetic. Like, I, I really, I'm curious who, how many of those people were re- replicants. I, it was clear to me, though, that the people in his apartment that were on the stairwell, those were all humans. They're sort of like old and unhealthy but the people who seemed i don't know the people in the market seemed more of them seemed like replicants to me for whatever reason 
um, that those people on the stairs, this, there's a, a great page in the Art and Soul of Blade Runner on this. Part of what is so great about this book is that it, it gets all of these little moments in the movie that come together to make this very complex whole, right? The scene of Kay going into his apartment is, is just a blip in the span of this movie. And yet we get all of the backstory behind it in this amazing book, right? So that was actually shot in Budapest at a school uh, with hundreds of handpicked extras. And the VFX team made it seem larger than it was by adding hallways and things like that. But those are mostly, you know, citizens of the city who were handpicked as extras to just sort of sit in there and look menacing or look displaced. Um, and uh, and I, I, I'll go ahead and just read out another quote here. Um, Ryan Gosling says, Replicants in 2049 are a disposable workforce created to do the jobs humans would rather not do. Blade Runners live on the fringe, considered inhumane pariahs, even amongst other replicants. They are the lowest of the low, killers of their own kind. They're asked to murder without question or risk retirement should they show any sign of emotional distress from the brutality of, of their existence. Kay's apartment is a reflection of how cold and barren his life is. And that's something important, because Kay's apartment, which we I don't think we've ever even really talked about, is very sterile again. It's very cold. It's very barren. There's basically nothing in it. It's a cube, right? Um, not even like an unattractive one. It's a beautiful place in some ways in that it looks very clean and very well thought out, but there's no, it doesn't seem lived in whatsoever. Deckard, I mean, of course, you know, I'm not going to bring up the Deckerap conversation, but Deckard's apartment in the first film is replete with all of these curios History. and Ochidar and history and pianos Memory. and music yeah. and photos and things, yeah. right? It's such a lived space, even though it's kind of gross and it's a mess and it's depressing because he's drunk in it and he's just sitting there watching time passing by. Um, there's a sense of, of lived history there. Kay's apartment, there's nothing. Kay's apartment is, is just a, it's a room. It's a Foxconn bunker room where they can go after they assemble all day. I want to bring up something else that I, I was actually, I wanted to bring up on the episode with Dr. Bunce. We kind of ran out of time because it's a pretty, pretty intense episode, um, but a great one. Uh, Kowloon Walled City. Do you guys know that history at all? Mm-mm. No. So this is one of my favorite, favorite things, which I really recommend. Anybody who does not know the history of this should look it up. Um, Kowloon, Wal- Kowloon Walled City was basically an, a totally ungoverned territory uh, in China that became uh, this uh, enclave within Kowloon City, which is in Hong Kong. And it was this vertical city that is just an amazing place. It's like one square mile or something. I have it pulled up here. Hang on. It's okay. So it's so it's six point four acres, um, and it contained fifty thousand residents. And basically, because it was this tiny, tiny little space, it's the size of like a large yard, basically, but it had fifty thousand people in it. It was built vertically, so it was all of these stacked, tiny businesses and banks for microloans and shopping things and, uh, and and family units. And they were all in this just this incredibly compressed space. And there was a lot of crime, as you can imagine. There were triads and things that were in there. But there was also people who lived there loved it because although it was chaotic and it was frenetic and it was dangerous, there was a real sense of actual closeness. It was people living as close to one another as they could. And you established trust in these little pockets of this walled city. And it became, you know, its own little family unit and it's 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 just the the history of that i think is amazing and i really recommend people look look it up it was demolished like 25 years ago but it's an incredible architectural moment um the original film aesthetically feels a lot like kowloon walled city to me and it always has and and so the first time i I heard about the walled city that, that was like sort of the first thing i thought of was like oh that feels like blade runner to me because blade runner to me before 2049 came out was that it was people living in very close proximity to each other kind of building on top of garbage 
you know, you're making me think of the uh, apartment building from Dread. Just like <laughs> yeah, yeah well, actually, I was actually going to bring that up um, specifically next. Actually, so I'm glad that you preempted that. I'm, I'm going to get or that, that other movie. Is it called High Rise with um, Tom, uh, the guy who plays Scarrett. Loki, Tom Hiddleston, Tom Hiddleston, Tom yeah. Middle, Middle, Kate Middleton. It's all this one big brutalist society in this. Um, called the high rise. I think it's called high rise. Um, is that not the one with, with Dwayne Johnson? No, Dwayne Johnson is not. It. This is like high brass sci-fi. Oh, that was skyscraper. That was another that was like <laughs> shit. Oh my God. That looks Jamie so does not watch movies with Dwayne Johnson. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fairly I will not. watch movies with Sharon Stone. No, I won't. <laughs> so anyway, so Kowloon Malt City to me represents that it's 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 over it's exploding with culture and proximity and warmth and and fear and beauty and uh, dirt right. The, but twenty forty nine is like what that looks like when nobody lives there anymore to me. It is it is the wind whistling through a structure like that, and uh, and I find that very powerful. So speaking of dread, the apartment building in dread is based on a building in South Africa that I'm not going to have time to look up now, Ooh. but I will when somebody else talks. Uh, it's this. It, 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 this is, it's something that I always think about when I think about Kay's apartment building in 2049, which is called Mobius 21, which is of course a shout out to, to Jean Giraud, Mobius. Um, so, uh, so this building in South Africa was built as a luxury. I think it was in Pretoria, but I will look this up in a moment. This like luxury, um, very beautiful, semi-brutalist apartment complex that was a high rise. It was like the tallest building in the city, and it had an open atrium in the middle that allowed a lot of light in. And it allowed, unfortunately, a lot of water to collect. But it was basically the idea was like you could get all these people living in this big vertical structure together. But because there was so much sunlight, because it was open on the inside as well as the outside, it would be this kind of destination, hip, modernist place. Um, but what happened was for a whole variety of reasons that we don't have time to get into, it became a slum, like a vertical slum. And so people, you know, the people who it was built for moved out. And then the people who actually needed a home, people who needed affordable housing and were denied it by structures like this being built in the city, um, started, you know, moving in and moving in in droves and living in the hallways and living in tenements within this apartment building that was becoming a tenement in and of itself. People living in the atrium that was open to the elements, so shivering in the cold, even though they were technically sheltered from the storm. Um, and th- within this society, you had gangs start springing up. You had crime syndicates. It, it's this whole, again, just like Kowloon Walled City, this whole micro uh, uh, society in a building. And um, and so the Dread building, it was, was based on this this concept. So and I always cool. think about that when I see this because there's people living, like I think, Jamie, you were saying this, people who clearly are living in the hallways of this thing. Like they, they, they're, they're not just like hanging out talking. These are people who like their belongings are there. They're in this building that is overrun with crime and is in a, a very depressing city. And they, to, to get out of the radioactive air that surrounds them, they are forced to just live in the, on the floor. And, um, and no wonder they're cranky, right? I mean, these people were, I mean, these, these people are policed and replaced in many cases by replicants. And there's one walking right by them, you know? Um, and, and that's where, of course, scapegoating comes from. That's where bigotry comes from. Is, and that's is, is people who become afraid of being overtaken or something. And I think that that's exactly what we see playing out in that hallway. Somebody else talks. I'm, I'm going to look up the Dread Apartment Building. One second. I'm going to fact check myself. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Again, with all the things you guys are saying about the production design, it's amazing to me how they were able to maintain this theme from the big to the small, from the um 
from the geography and the urban construction all the way to the intimate feelings of each character. Um, fuck, give me a second because I just lost my thought, but I had another example. Oh, uh, it reminds me of something that I've, again, brought up because it's a memorable moment from moments in this podcast. Uh, when I got to interview uh, Peter Yuseni from Territory Studio, um, who was the creative director of all the graphic designers who did all the, most of the screens for 2049, right? And if you go back and listen to that interview, the amount of detail he had on his direction from Villeneuve and from the creative team and how I was thinking about this when Jamie was talking about the blackout, how they conceptually decided that the blackout was going to kill basically all the power source to all this stuff, but that it could be resurrected if you were able to find an alternative power source. So for example, the screens and the NK's spinner lost their original power source but would then jerry-rig to have either bioluminescence or some other power source that was different from what they'd been hooked up with in the first place, and it created this different look. And so that's how they approached most of their projects in terms of the 120-plus or whatever it was, screens that they did. And that's why it looks so alien yet so familiar, and it's a mix between analog and digital, and I just feel like especially that company in particular, that third party that was tasked with that particular project did such a good job of blending those two things and walking that fine line. And, and I think it's a great representation again, amongst other examples um, of everyone from Denis to the model makers being able to keep this concept in their heads of again, this familiarity with the first film and this um, oppressive sort of claustrophobia while also doing something that was growing out of that and that was different. Um, and I just think it's amazing to see the big picture and the small picture matching up so well in all those different departments. Dan, you just pulled a, you just pulled a me by hitting your mic there, buddy. (laughs) That was a classic Patrick moment. moment. Um, okay. I'm fact checking myself. It was in Johannesburg, uh, not Pretoria, but it, but it is actually real and it is called the Ponte Ponte city. Um, and there's a, an amazing article in the Atlantic if people want to see like pictures. P-O-N-T-E. Of a number of films, yeah, mm-hmm. a number of films have been filmed there actually, actually as a location over the years. And uh, in this article, there's a specific moment. They were filming Resident Evil in it. And they left a note to the tenants saying, and the, I'm just going to read it, whatever. It says, Dear tenants of Ponte City, there are people shooting a movie in the building, so there will be gunshots that you will hear. So please just keep calm. Don't panic. <laughs> it's just ridiculous but they, there was so much crime that actually they were used to hearing gunshots in the city so that's uh neither here nor there but wow. an interesting little yeah this little is bit of trivia. a terrifying um, visual seeing that whole circular thing like i would yeah. not want to live there i would feel like i <laughs> right? was at the end of the world like it, no <laughs> it's that is not inspiring it is hor- it's like it's like projects well, it became it became that, but it, it it became that for the wrong it became that for the wrong reasons, it, not as affordable housing, but as housing that was basically uninhabitable. So only the yeah. people who couldn't afford housing could afford to live there. Yeah. Um. But so all of this, I I really want to make sure before we wrap that we talk a little bit more about Vegas because it's something we've danced around quite a bit on the last two episodes, um, and it's something that I I, I just think is so fascinating. And again, it gives us another chance to talk about Sid Mead, of course, which 
I feel like we should. So I want to bookmark that. If you guys want, I have other stuff before that. We can get to it. But that's something that I want to make sure we dedicate a, a few. Yeah, few I mean, Vegas to. almost needs its own its own its own episode in some ways. But yeah, I I definitely think it's worthy. It's so it's such a different. It's the biggest move they could have made in terms of story, in terms of architecture, everything. They decided Lighting. let's go to a new city. And that's never been done in a Blade Runner. They didn't just go to a new city. They went to two. They went to San Diego, essentially, Trash Mesa. And then they went to um, Vegas. It's very Although San Diego, in the, the way it's presented in the film, is like a district of L.A., right? By that point, it's like the garbage mm-hmm. dump for, mm-hmm. for Los Angeles, which I think is funny. But yeah, but that's a really great point, Jamie. And and it's in, in the and of course to Android's dream of electric sheep, we see many other locations, um, you know, up the Pacific Northwest and things like that. But in, in a Blade Runner film, we've actually never seen another on world place before, right? Mm-hmm. And Vegas it presents us with this just it, it, well, it presents it presents us with a few things. One of those things is the reason why we don't see any other places in the world in a Blade Runner movie. It's because everything else is gone as far as we can see, right? Las Vegas and Los Angeles, as you guys know better than I do, are not that far apart from each other. Like this, you know, it's a few hour drive, right? Um, uh, or a couple hour uh, plane ride. It's like an hour drive. One no, hour not from no, not from, from LA. From LA, it's okay, three hours. Apparently, the way Grandma drives is a long. <laughs> no, no. From LA proper, Vegas is like four hours. If you're no, in no, LA. no, no, no. hold on. I was talking about San Diego and LA first of all. Oh, no, oh. San Diego is, like, attached to L.A. Oh, That's yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about Vegas. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it, it, my point being that, you know, whether we're talking about San Diego or talking about Las Vegas, we're talking about metropolitan areas that are pretty freaking close to Los Angeles. And and you and it's clear that, like, Las, there's a reason why nobody's in Las Vegas anymore. It's because it's irradiated and uninhabitable and, and a wasteland. And that is, like... It makes you wonder, like, if, if that's just Vegas, like, what the hell's going on east of that? Like, what 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 else is is missing in this world? And it really drives home this idea that if you could have gotten out of the of on world habitation, you would have by this point. If you could have left, you would have left. And if you are there, it's because you have a way to get off again, like Wallace, right? Who has a basically a delivery service to go off world whenever he wants to. Um, Vegas to me is such an incredible aesthetic leap in so many ways. Of course, it was inspired by the dust storms in Sydney in 2009, uh, which has been you know written about quite at length, but I think is worth noting, of course, because again, this year we had tremendous fires, um, which Dan knows extremely well, but Jamie also saw some of the effects of those in Southern California, um, which brought that same kind of yellow to amber hue to the skies. And, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. this went viral for having a resemblance to 2049. And I think that um, tw- that that to me was a very clear indication of what is iconic about this movie. Because this is a movie, remember, that lost money ultimately after the advertising budget was taken into account. This is a movie that did not do very well in theaters. But it is a movie that has entered popular consciousness to the point, even just in three years, where you can say it as a shorthand, you know, where you can say, look, this looks like Blade Runner, and people go, oh, yeah, it does. Even though Blade Runner before 2017 to everybody in the world looked like black skies with rain falling and neon signs in the background. And now you say Blade Runner, and a lot of people in the world will say, oh, yeah, like that orange glow. 
um, of Las Vegas, which I freaking love because even on the color wheel, this is we're talking about the opposite side of the spectrum from the colors that you see in the original film. Mm-hmm. This is something so diametrically different. This is something that takes that idea of desolation to a whole different place because literally there are nobody else. There's nobody else living there other than Deckard. There's no life. There's nobody in the streets because there's nobody, right? There's no anything. There are no lights on. There's no advertising. There's no blimps. There's no shit. There's just fossils. There are fossils created by our own comet, right? We did this to ourselves. And now we are huddled together in these terrible tenement buildings, bracing ourselves from the storm that we've created from uncontrollable climate change with building walls in Sepulveda that, you know, on the Sepulveda, the Sepulveda wall that go up stories into the air to protect ourselves from the shit that we have unleashed upon ourselves. And I just think that Las Vegas to me represents that in such a great way. And it does it in the context, of course, of this incredibly hubristic setting of this, you know, capitalist, materialist, hedonistic palace in the desert that I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that is like just almost almost cringingly um, self-centered, you know, that, that we built this thing in the middle of nowhere that was just a basically a den for our pleasures. Um, and that den for our pleasures has been transformed into this, this incredibly visible symbol of our self-destruction. And it's done in a way that is so poetic and beautiful. And it was done for real, right? There are compositing shots in that, which of course are laid out in this book. Um, and actually, I, I don't remember who it was, but somebody said, you know, a typical blockbuster of this length will have anywhere from like 3,000 to 7,000 VFX shots. 2049 has about 1,000 of them. Hmm. So there are very, very, very few. And you can see that as you go through this book, almost everything that they're using has some real built environment component, which I'm sure we'll get to before we wrap. Um, But even Vegas, which of course looks like nothing else on our planet, was to a large degree shot for real. Even to the point where they trucked in red dirt for Kay to walk through and just put green screen in front of things that they had to get out. Um, and then, of course, on the soundstage, you know, for the sculpture garden sequence, everybody has seen this footage, this incredible thing where Deacons, you know, hung these lights from the ceiling and created this dust glow. And an actual soundstage, it is just, it's just amazing. And you feel that the second you watch this movie. But um, I, I want to just briefly say um, one of the many reasons people should pick up the art and soul of Blade Runner is because Sid Mead is in it. And, of course, we have since lost him. Um, and Sid Mead was kind enough to provide copious production sketches that he made for the Vegas sets. And they are things of astonishing beauty, things of extraordinary beauty. Uh, He incorporates actual buildings that people will recognize, like the Mirage that are in our world. He just sort of transmutes them and puts them in this. But he also comes up with this fantastical architecture, which doesn't look that much like the architecture we end up with because we don't really see very much of it because of the dust. Um, but it is, it is just, it's just astonishingly beautiful artwork and it's such a testament to what a master he was. And you get to, you know, get another interview with this guy who, uh, determined the look of some of the most seminal films of our, of our era. I hope they, I don't know what the status is on like a, an extensive 2049 documentary, but if they've been working on it, if there are, I hope that there are interviews with Sid Mead that are in depth to be included on whatever we might get in the in the past or in the future i'm holding up yeah. the book. i know i know you guys have this book and you've you've read it a million times but like just this fucking spread everybody who has the book just turn to page 176 and you tell me that's not the most fucking gorgeous science fiction artwork you've seen in forever it's just it's just astounding and of course he you know he talks about it um 
and 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 Denis also has a nice quote where he talks about Sidney being one of the great futurists of our time. Um, one of my favorite things about 2049 is that it gave us this extra opportunity to appreciate Sid Mead for who he was before he passed. Not just the film, but also the comic book series that was, you know, greenlit because of the success of his movie, because of course there's all the Sid Mead variant covers for it. Um, he was very much back in the popular conversation for the first time since, for a long time, in my opinion. And, uh, and, you know, of course we lost him last year, but I, I feel like he's so, he's so thoroughly alive in this film and in the history and the legacy of it that um, it feels like we get extra time with him every time we watch it. It's pretty profound. It's also very interesting to think of the city that he designed and then who lives in this city, the only person that we know of, Deckard does. Why did Deckard do that? Probably to go die. Yes, it's irradiated, it's, it's, it's deadly, and he's like, well, I'm alone anyways. What, who gives a I'll shit? I'll just drink myself you know? to death. Totally. That's what he went to go do. He reverted back to the Deckard that we know um, or that we met in 2019 in the beginning of it. Um, but yeah, it's the design of that city is fascinating. It's beautiful and deadly and grotesque and timeless. It's, it's very interesting. And I also want to just point out that in addition to the things I've already talked about, the sculptures were also real, which is fucking crazy. Those mm -hmm. enormous wireframe sculptures, not the entire things. There was some compositing going on to fill them out. But there were actual, and you see these in the book, like 30-foot tall sculptures that were made for this movie. And, and so few other films would do that. So few other films would spend the time to make that happen. And they do that all over the place in this. Another great example of this, not to move on from L.A. or from um, Las Vegas... Uh, but I, I just started bringing it up. The um, the orphanage was largely an actual built location shoot, which mm -hmm. is fucking nuts that that building actually exists. It was a decommissioned power plant from the Soviet mm -hmm. era that was about an hour outside of Budapest. And, uh, and they got permits to film there, and they had to come up with all these safety procedures to make sure nobody would die from it. But they basically just used that location, which actually existed and was many stories tall and was crazy. And then they just curved the sides of it and added some, you know, VFX things around the periphery. But that's another great example of, I mean, I feel like the Star Wars prequels, when, when that was happening back around 2000, the conversation in this country and, and, and in this industry, not this country, just in this industry, was all that, like, this is the future, that we will be only green or blue screening everything from now on. And that it's great because we can go anywhere and we can shoot anything, right? And then we had movies like, you know, Robert Zemeckis' uh, uh, Polar Express where, you know, you had all these facial capture animations and it looked like maybe there's going to come a time where we don't even need real actors anymore. We can just have everything done digitally. And what we're seeing in Hollywood now, and I think, think Denis is a big reason for that, I think also Christopher Nolan and other people of that ilk, is a return to physical heft and weight and, and the time and the expense that it takes to do that. And uh, 2049 is a movie that I really think way uh, to, to a huge degree, most people who were commissioned to make it uh, would have chosen to do almost all of it digitally um, or virtually. And, and it probably would have been good. Like it probably, they probably could have made it work, but it wouldn't be special like this. It wouldn't be haunting and real and it wouldn't feel like the original did. A reason why people love the original film so much, one of the reasons is that we feel like we could step into it and we would be splattered with the rain and we'd have to like go under an awning and we'd hear somebody going by selling rice, you know? 2049 is like that. 2049, when Kay steps into that desert, I feel like I could take a step with him. 
Like I could feel the I can feel the sand crunching under my boot, you know. Um, and that is what great production design is all about. And Dennis Gassner, somebody who's been around for a long time, he won an Academy Award in the '80s for Bugsy, which I've never seen. Or Bub Bubsy, Bugsy Bub, which one is it? Bubsy, Bugsy. Bugsy? <laughs> whatever it's the fuck I don't know it's a movie I don't really give a shit about but he won the Academy Award for that and other than that he's done a bunch of Bond films he's done a bunch of things but he's never you know become this sort of vaunted name uh, in, in in film you know um, and he is now I mean now yeah. any science fiction fan worth you know their weight knows who Dennis Kastner is he did Dun- he's done Dunkirk since then he yeah. did 1917 a uh, strange connection with Gastner is when Gastner's 74. Uh, no, he's 70. He's 71, I think. Se- oh, you're right, you're right. No, he's 72. He was born in 48. Okay. Um, when Scott was filming the original Blade Runner, he was looking into Neon, and it was Gastner in the early 80s that hooked him up with specific Neon that he was looking for. So oh. there's this strange connection um, to the original Blade Runner as well. Um, Very cool. I think before we wrap, we should move into just to talk about a little bit the criticism that 2049 receives and largely for everything that I've seen or read is because it doesn't look like 2019 enough. And um, that's really it is that it doesn't look familiar enough, which I, I, I don't know if I give credence to that. I don't, that's not enough for me. It's not enough criticism Um, to me. I would criticize something um, that would come after, oh, this isn't working for me, so th- I don't like this. It wouldn't, like, first, as you guys know and people who know me know, usually it's characters that don't work for me. And then when the characters aren't working for me, this uh, these other things aren't working for me either. But it is largely the criticism that 2049 does not look and feel like Ridley Scott's vision. And I think it's a curious criticism because it's not the same film. It's not the same time. Many events have happened in this world since. Uh, In 2019, you have this emotional desolation happening. In 2049, you have the, the, uh, the externalization of that emotional, um, distance that we felt in 2019 it's it's all over it's the the world feels like we felt internally in 2019 and i thought i think it's poignant and i'm not trying to like say oh you're stupid for thinking that but it's a criticism that i don't quite understand or get yeah i mean it's very subjective so i can't tell people that feel that way that they're wrong but i just think it's um yeah, too much expectation. Too many people going into it wanting to see a specific thing and not allowing it the breathing space that a difficult project like this requires, I think. Um, and so, you know, yeah, there, there's no objective truth to whether a movie is great or not. Um, you, you're never going to convince all people that 2049 is great. But I think for all the reasons we mentioned, um, especially in being able to be bold and create a new vision while still respecting the original work, which is again, a very fine line to walk. Um, and the fact that all the professionals that Denis was, that the production was able to hire, um, really were geniuses in their own right, but maintained their sights and their focus on this concept, which is a little bit amorphous and a little bit hard to pin down. 
um, which is where a great director comes in because he can tell people where they're going wrong and, and steer that ship. But, um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't go back and change anything really about the production design of this film. I'm really grateful that they went to the direction that they did. But I do think that there is something special about the fact that people push back on that. And I think it's it says that we all watch movies for different reasons. We all go to the movies to see different things. And it's easy to forget that, I think, sometimes for us, because we talk about film so much, and we talk about what we appreciate about it so much, that I think it can be easy for us to forget that other people might be seeing totally different things than we mm-hmm. are, and other people might be loving things for different reasons than we do. And I think that um, that, that criticism is, is obviously completely valid, because it's their subjective opinion about whether or not the film is working for them. And um, I think that I can understand why. I know that when I saw the trailer for 2049, I was shocked. I was like, what the fuck is this going to be? Like, the, I, I did not... I mean, I was also, like, so excited I couldn't handle myself. But I was like, this does not look anything like Blade Runner to me. This is, like, so different. Um, and I had that feeling of, of fear a little bit, too, and I understand that. And, and I'm, I feel really glad that that fear subsided as soon as the movie started, and I just fell madly in love with it. Um, and I think it would be really, really hard if I hadn't, and I can really empathize with people who haven't. And I have to say, I really personally appreciate how... Uh, I don't know if, I, if, I don't know if it's a, a choice or not, but I, I, I feel like the Blade Runner fan community has been very accepting of other opinions in general. Mm-hmm. And that there haven't been, I haven't seen a lot of sort of flame war anger debates about this stuff. And as somebody who's very active in, in other sci-fi fandoms like Star Wars and Alien, um, that's not always the case in those, in those communities. Um, I, think, I think what we all understand is that Blade Runner is a very special film. The original film was a very special film. And that, that is for many different reasons. But at the end of the day, it's for whatever reason made it special for you as a film viewer and a film goer. And those reasons are sacred. Those reasons define who we are. And, uh, and, 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 it's, and it can hurt when those things are broken. It can feel like a, break, like a breach of trust. And uh, I personally don't have any issues whatsoever with the production design of 2049. Um, I feel like it is in every bit the equal to the original film. Um, from And not just from a production standpoint, but from a story standpoint, even from a musical standpoint. I just think it's just an absolute wall-to-wall work of brilliance. And uh, and I still kind of marvel at the fact that it happened in the first place. I still sort of pinch myself sometimes, even though I've seen it so many times, and even though, you know, I got shit hanging all over the house, and we have, you know, love action figures downstairs, and we have, you know, a, K, a K-Funko pop on top of a Nabokov book. Like, I still sometimes have to remind myself, like, that's, that's real. Like, this actually, this actually happened. This crazy movie actually happened, and it wasn't a carbon copy of the original. It was something totally different. And I am so personally glad that the reasons why I see films were not broken by this movie, and that it just sort of played to the things that I care about at the end of the day, which would have to be, other than characters, world building, and ideas and those those to me are really really important and i think 2049 delivers on those incredibly well but um i can see why people would have issues with it it's a hard thing to do to mess with something special like that and i commend the filmmakers for taking that step totally and i think that there's a risk you we can see in recent film releases of different genres where you had filmmakers recreate things that we'd seen before and they weren't that you're like, yeah, we've seen this before. 
and it's a cross TV film, whatever. And not to say that it always didn't work, but a lot of the times it doesn't work when you're just recreating things that you've seen before um, that are comfortable. And I think all of us, you know, and Patrick and I, we've had this discussion of, you know, bringing Ripley back for an, another alien film, you know, sidestepping alien three or whatever. And, how difficult that might be. Um, but we don't really re- need to retread that, you know, um, the best story is going to be something new. It's going to be with a new character. Maybe you can have her legacy discussed or whatever, but uh, that's a hard thing to do, especially, especially with Blade Runner where there's been only one film and people just fall head over heels for it. And then 37 years later, you're going to bring it back in its own way and you're going to change portions of it. That that's tough to do, but for me, the writing has been on the wall, and definitely people can have the right to feel however they want to feel. But I think I would prefer them to have taken a risk, and maybe they would have failed with twenty forty nine. Thankfully, they didn't. But it's a risk. I think it's it is easier to recreate something we've seen. It is easier to do something that's more comfortable. We all we are creatures of comfort. We like to be comfortable. We go to a lot of us go to the movies to escape. Um, and the world of 2049 is not forgiving and you really miss, um, at least initially I missed the comfort I had seen in 2019 when I saw 2049. However, that's changed for me. 2049 really brings me comfort these days. Like the, when the film opens in that music and I'm back in this world that I'm comfortable in, that feels like home and whatever odd way it is. Um, but, I, you know, I think, like you said, it is all valid, and uh, I'm sure we'll continue to talk about it more. And I, I know we were talking about doing some sort of an episode on why 2049 can feel like that or kind of wrapping that into something. And and I, I feel like part of, part of it might be, at least for me personally, because the experience of seeing it was so memorable and it's so kind of locked in my head as such a wonderful memory that's so tied to a specific time in our world that is so far removed from this fucking nightmare that we've been living through for such a long time now. And that sitting here in this unending pandemic with this low grade fear that we've just become so accustomed to having, uh, and let alone all of the other things that are going on in the world that are stressful. Um, 2017, it's not like 2017 was an easy time in world history by, by any stretch of the imagination, but it was not this, you know, it was not this. And, and and the film 2049 to me, when I watch it or when I listen to the music, I don't watch it that frequently anymore because I've seen it so many times, but I do listen to the, the score all the time. Um, it puts me right back in that place of sitting there and walking out into that crisp October night with Micah and, and calling Jamie in tears about this movie and, and then being like, I have to see this tomorrow morning and then going back and then going back and going back and going back and being like, how is this still playing anywhere? I don't know, but I'm going to go back and I'm gonna, like, who, who do I know who I haven't shown it to yet? And just those that and and just that the fun that we had in those weeks and those months after it came out, where we were just like obsessed with this thing, and could not get over how amazing it was. That to me is comfort. There are obviously aesthetic comforts that we can talk about too, and there are other elements in this film that are, that can be comforting. But to me, something that I will never get over is just the sheer joy of encountering this in my lifetime. And uh, and every time I revisit it, I'm back a little bit in that moment well i guess we can probably wrap there uh before we do there's a couple things that we want to talk about um one of them is patreon i'm gonna let patrick talk about that 
Yeah, let's uh, let's let's do a little. We're gonna do a little roll call. Um, thank you again to every single one of you who supports our shows. We picked up a few patrons in the last uh, couple of months, which has been amazing. Uh, bringing our total now to like fifty-four, I think, total patrons, which is just one hundred and fifty-six, <laughs> three million patrons, <laughs> uh, which is just absolutely amazing. And, and every single one of you, we know your names, we know who you are. We're personal friends with many of you at this point, and we appreciate every single one of these names that I'm about to read. If you are interested in joining our Patreon program, you can go to bladerunnerpodcast.com/support or perfectorganism.com/support, or you can just look at us uh, for. Uh, look at search for us on Patreon um, and again you get exclusive perks you get early access to content but what you especially get are our frame rate episodes uh, which we drop twice per month and they cover all sorts of other films and those episodes are, are seriously some of my favorite things that we do we just did uh, one last night that was like two hours long and was very very personal we did another one uh, shortly before that that was a Hollywood classic and it was a lot of fun to talk about my point being, there's a lot more content in addition to frame rate too sitting out there if you're interested in getting access to it. So uh, without further ado, here are the patrons. Uh, Alex, uh, we have Alexander Gates, Andrew Tracy, Andy Ev, Ben Fletcher, Brendan Lutber, Burke Bennett, Carla Rosa, Chase Cupo, CL11B, Craig Wright, Dan Ferlito, Daniel Purpletree, Darren Gold, Dave Joyce, Dave Turner, David Benson, David Holmes. We have so many freaking Davids. Oh, my God. <laughs> David Holmes. Dom. Do we have a Walter? <laughs> I don't know. Do we? Dwight Paulson, Gene McDonald. Congrats again, Gene, on the new addition to your family. Oh, yeah. Congratulations, Gene. Graeme Zirk. Jackie Childers. Jason Struess. Joel Thomas Rosmos. Uh, Jonas Holmston. Jordan Mason. Julian Casey. Ken S. Kevin. Kyle Burton. Mike Dennis. Murray Kucherawi. Nathan Gribble, Nigel Carroll, Paul Goodfellow, Perry Chicos, Peter from the Midwest, Rachel Cordy, Reno D, Richard Blackwell, Richie Ammons, Sethicus 0480, Stephen Bischoff, Stephen Ames, Stephen Appleman, Stuart Fawither, Thomas Cruzes, Thurian Lack, Tim Hazeldean, Tim Lawson, Wookie Howell, Xander House, and Zachary Rice. Every one of you is noticed and appreciated and part of our family, and we are eternally grateful for your thank support. Thank you guys so much. Yes, thank you. Uh, so lastly, if you want to sign up for Patreon... If you go to bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support, sign up, two bucks a month, you get a couple free shows and our regular shows uh, from Shoulder of Orion. Um, also, this conversation will continue on our discussion group, Fields of Calantha. And so after we post this a day or two later, once we have a, a few downloads of the, epi of the episode, we will post sort of a, a post discussion. What do you guys think of the of the production design uh give us your thoughts and maybe we'll come back we haven't done a listener feedback episode in probably a year or so so we'll probably get on that eventually but please go to fields of calantha it's a great group uh, devoted to blade runner it's a little bit different than the others it's pretty discussion heavy um because of the pandemic and everything happening in this crazy world things have been a little quiet but that's sort of all over fandom right now um, but yeah please join up and we'd love to hear from you and see you Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thanks guys. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.